Hello, and welcome to Workle's Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. Welcome to this edition of Workle's Happiness Podcast. I am absolutely thrilled to talk today to Lavinia Stennett. Now, Lavinia is a really interesting individual. Uh, She's the founder and the CEO of the Black Curriculum. Uh, She's recently graduated with first-class honours from SOAS. And for those of you who don't know what SOAS is, it's the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. She's a historian, she's a writer, and as you're about to discover, she's an amazing campaigner. Lavinia, welcome very much to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's really good to be here. So let's start with your early years. I know, and our listeners will soon get to know, about all of your amazing campaigning work. But when you were young, what did you want to do by way of work? I I wanted to sing. Like I've always been um, interested in just the arts and and performing um, on stage. So like I grew up in the church and that was something that I frequently was doing on stage singing. So I think I just wanted to pursue that. And then very shortly after, so probably by the age of like eight, I had decided that I wanted to become a lawyer, um, an entertainment lawyer. So again, connecting the arts and my passion for singing to something that could make my parents happy. So I, st- I started saying that I wanted to become an entertainment lawyer. Um, yeah, that was the ambition. And, and so when you said that, did you think that that was going to be the thing that you were always going to drive for? Were all your studies at school based on, I'm going to be a lawyer? Or was there a point that you decided that you were going to change direction? So many times I've changed direction. Um, <laughs> I think I've always kind of had a passion for the law and like the ability to enforce justice. So I think that that has been something that I've aspired to throughout my my um, education. Um, I'd say whilst I was in uh, sixth form, it became very clear that I had a deeper interest in the law when I started to learn more about um, law, politics. I also took drama again you know connecting the arts as well so um when you think of law it's very theatrical you think of like judges in court you think of like lawyers it's, it's a performance right so I think there is something there that that does interest me um and I've always kind of been aware of that um yeah and so w- when you say that um you had a, a passion or an interest in justice wh- where did that come from is it your parents or something you saw or watched or read I, I don't know. I think it was something that I've just grown up believing in. Um, there was an example that I, always, I remember so vividly. I was probably like four and um, my parents was walking home with me and my brother and we'd saw um, someone down the road who was trying to kind of get into our house. And I remember just feeling very angry. <laughs> and I ran down the road and I confronted him and I was like, what are you trying to do? And my mom was just like, like, stop what you're doing. And I just remember feeling very like, I have to do something about something that's wrong. So I think from a young age, I've always had that, like, I'm going to challenge things. I'm going to like speak up and like, just try and make things right. So I don't know what it is, but it's always been within me. So would you say you're courageous? I'm very courageous. Yeah. Very outspoken. 
where do you get the strength to be courageous? Because many people aren't. Um, I think my mum is one of the, and my grandma actually, if you, if you meet my mum and my grandma, they're very outspoken, very courageous people. They don't hold back. Um, and they know what to say at the right time. And I think it's just something that we carry in our, in our family. It's just, yeah, if you see something that's wrong, if you have an opinion, make it known. Do you think women are more courageous than men? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I'd say so. I'd say that in, especially in my culture, um, women are at the, the forefront of a lot of like movements around like social change. That's not to say that there aren't great men. I think the women just take the burden on more. And, and tell us about your culture. So I'm Jamaican. Um, my dad was born there. My mum was born here, but her mum, so my grandma was born in Jamaica. She came here in like the 1940s. And my culture is very like, obviously, you know, about Jamaica, like usually you'd see like the island, how vibrant it is. But I'd say we're actually a very, like very innovative people. We, we are very adaptable. We find ways to um, make something out of nothing. And I think that's like, yeah, it's, it's about creation. And yeah, I'm really proud to be Jamaican. And do you feel that's helped you in what you're trying to achieve? Has Def it given you a, a different perspective than Def others? Definitely, like, um, the schooling around, like, cultural education, like, you know, the graft, not giving up, making sure that you continue to persevere um, and find ways of doing it. So, for example, like, this is something that is in every Jamaican household, toothpaste, you make sure that <laughs> when it's coming to the end, you make sure that it's all finished. So you cut it open, you scrape out everything that's left and you make, you know, you make use of things. And I think that's been something that I've carried in my work. It's been something that I've carried into my school. And so like, if, you know, if there's objectively no way to do it, I'm going to make it work, you know? And so t tell us about the end of your schooling before you went to university. Tell us about what you were thinking when you were doing your A-levels about what you saw before you were in life. So I had a bit of a tumultuous experience in the education system. So I was actually excluded by year nine um, permanently. So I, I was out of school for like two years. Um, what, out of the, the normal school system, I went to a PRU, which is like a pupil referral unit. Um, and it was there that I just saw how it feels. I saw how it feels to be disenfranchised. And I witnessed other people just going right off the edge. And I was like, that's not what that's not what I've been brought up to do. It's not what I want for my life. Um, so I made the decision to like, yeah, get a mentor. And I had like really key people around me and friends who were also trying to enroll in college. So I just followed them and I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna enroll, I'm gonna do my GCSEs and my A-levels. And, and when I started Merton Sixth Form, um, what was going through my mind was just, I just want to do something that I'm passionate about. I want to make my life feel like I'm doing something. Um, and yeah, that's really, I think that's really what carried me through. And, and I think I found my passion. The more I studied, the more that I was enjoying things and seeing what I could do rather than what was not possible, I found my passion. And so tell us about being excluded and the people you met and how that experience shaped you. Um, being at school was devastating. Obviously, like year nine, um, you're in the middle of your formative years and like you're making friends and stuff. And I felt very like um, not only excluded from the school, but actually excluded socially because um, the labels that are then put on you, like what people expect of you is that, you know, you're not going to achieve. And that's how people and like people within the education system, like engage with you. So I felt very like um, 
demotivating and I, I got that from other people as well that I was around so the kind of things that we were doing was just not like things that would take you any further in life it's just like you've you've been given this box and you just remain within that so I think for a while I was just not um inspired I didn't really feel like um I had much to give or it's not that I didn't have much to give it's just like the things that I had to give it would take me so long to get where I need to be um because of how society has already labeled me right as the excluded child and stuff like that but um I always knew what I carried within me I knew that I was smart I knew that I was very like I could just I could do work um so yeah I I had a bit of experience in the real world I worked my first job was at Sports Direct um it didn't last long <laughs> um I, I put my graft in, I put my all into things that I knew I could, you know, excel at. So I think I always had it within me, even though there were situations and people that said otherwise. And, and so you said that you had it in yourself to see that you needed to change and work hard. So you were self-motivated and you went to get your GCSEs and, and A-levels. But when you look back now on those people that you were with um, during that time of exclusion, what, what do you think can be done now to help them? What more should be done? Such a good question. Um, I think firstly, like listening to them, because often like once you're relegated into that part of society, it's like things are done for you. So you have to go to like, um, you have to go to, I guess, like a, a not a training, but uh, like a therapy session on like, you have people already writing down things about you and like kids, you know what you then need to do so there's always a like a preconceived idea about what's best for that young person but actually the people that helped me were the ones that took time to understand what it was that I was interested in and um, they were the ones that um, gave me the um, the ear to really just identify what it is that I needed to get to the next step um, so I think more kind of empathetic listening um, through anyone who kind of works with young people around that age and in those situations. And I would, I would also say more skill training, more skills-based training. Um, so for example, it's only now over the past year that I've like learned financial literacy. And I can see in your background that you've got a book that says finance for everyone, right? Uh, or finance for all. And I think that's like really important that um, young people of that age are given the skills to then, you know, support their future ambitions because you can't just give them a job and then expect them to maintain that if they don't have the skills in order to, to succeed at that. So I think more skill-based training, more interpersonal skills, because um, those are things you obviously learn over time, but it would, would be better if those things were provided for young people as well. And you, you talked about you having a mentor how or mentors. How, how important was that? So fundamental, like um, throughout Okay, so before I started college, I had a mentor who would just listen, um, just come over, should knock at my door, even when I wasn't in the mood to speak, she'd just be like, I'm here, I'm here for you. And I think just recognizing that there's always someone who can, you, who can lean into. Um, and in, in terms of like career wise, when I was at college, I got a mentor for the girls network and they provide like women mentors for young, for young girls. And having that, for me at that age, I was just like, oh, wow, she's done a lot. And I can also aspire to that. And she gave me a lot of like tools, tips when it came to just like writing my personal statement. Um, it just was really good to have someone who knew what to do and was available to give me that advice. And it didn't feel very, sometimes, you know, you go to an older person, you're not really sure if they're like gonna help you, but it was very nice. Like that, it just felt very free flowing. She accepted me as I was, and there was no judgment there. Um, and we're still in contact today, like she's great. 
And do you, do you still have a mentor today? I have many. <laughs> I, have, I have like five um, for different things. So I get coached in terms of my personal development. And um, I am mentored by another social entrepreneur who's done really well. Um, but then I also have like financial advisors and people who like look after that side of things for me as well. So, yeah. And, and going back now to doing your A-levels, um, what did you think you wanted to do after your A-levels? What was your plan? It was law. Law. I wanted to do law at LSE. Um, I'll tell you a really funny story. We had like a, a trip, you know, that you do those like little trips to like the Royal Courts of Justice to kind of see what it's like. Everybody came in tracksuits. I was there with my like full suit on. I had my, uh, my shirt, my bag, my book ready to kind of like go in and like in the mindset that I wanted to be there. So I think law was always like something that I wanted to do. Um, especially at that time. And it was only until, yeah, my A-level results came through and I didn't get into LSE. I was like, oh my God, like, what am I going to do? I didn't really have any backup choices. And SOAS appeared and yeah, we can talk about that. <laughs> yeah, so tell us about SOAS, so the School of Oriental and African Studies. So, yeah, so tell us about going there and what you studied. So um, SOAS was one of those universities that I used to hear all my college friends talk about. And I was like, I am never going there. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm never going to be a campaigner. Like, that is not me. Um, and then it was whilst I was on holiday when I received my A-level results, that I was like, well, I didn't get into LSE. There's nowhere else that offers law and anthropology, which is what I wanted to study and had spaces in clearing. Um, but SOAS, so when I had like initially gone onto the website, it said they had the space. I went back the next like hour or so, it had gone. And the only courses they had available were um, within the humanities around history. And then I saw African studies and I was like, well, what, you know, what would happen if I just chose to go and study African studies? And it was so interesting because at the time I was actually in Kenya and you know, the national language is Swahili and it said African studies and Swahili. And I was like, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it. And um, I, yeah, we got into SOAS. Um, and I remember the first lecture that I had, I was just like, wow, like this is so new. This information feels very like right for me. Um, and immediately I felt like I, that was my community. I, you know, looking back in hindsight, I don't think LSE would have been the place for me at that time. Um, yeah, SOAS is, is, was the best choice for me definitely and that degree as well and you were happy yeah definitely happy so in your time there I know that you became a campaigner so um I know the story but just tell the listeners the story about how you became a campaigner and a champion uh, for people there to get bursaries so I in my second year so first year it was just like a breeze through the park. It wasn't okay, it wasn't a breeze. It was actually quite challenging. Um, but in terms of like socially, it was a breeze because I was meeting people, getting along. And then the second year, there was an opportunity for people to run for, um, you know, the student union, like presidents and stuff. And people were encouraging me because of the things that I would say in class. And, you know, and I was like, meh. And there was a position that closed, then it reopened, and it was for the working class students. So myself and another girl called Valeria, we had just come together. Valeria's from Moldova, and she had a working class experience. And I was like, well, I come from a working class background. 
I have the awareness. I've been through situations where I've seen again, like what happens to working class students in these environments. So I'm going to bring myself to this role with Valeria. And we ran for it, we got it. And it was during, I think October of 2017, we were having loads of conversations like as students around what's available for students. And I was, I was seeing that things just weren't adding up. Some students were saying they received support. Others were saying they didn't. And I was like, all right, what we need to do is like just get all the information we can. So we sent out like loads of emails to people, you know, um, who were who identified as working class, asked them if they had, you know, received this bursary. Um, and this bursary is compulsory for every university to give their students who come from, I think, an income under a household income under twenty five thousand. Um, so we had like yeah done a lot of research, then gathered the fact that there was a lot of discrepancies. So. Um, over Christmas, I remember just being in my front room, planning, just saying like, we're gonna call this campaign that way. The students are gonna get their money back. Um, and I had approached another co-president who, um, yeah, just offered her help to say like, look, we can like, yeah, make this a campaign. And yeah, so we basically um, staged a, <laughs> a campaign over two days um as well as like loads of emails kind of creating more awareness about the issue in SOAS so there were students who weren't working class who were like what this is outrageous um so it was just getting everybody on our side and then also kind of confronting management and that's what we done um during the campaign so we had our speakerphones and everything it was very dramatic <laughs> um, but it was good because we raised awareness about it and we were just we were just asking for the money back really but that had come only after we had established you know the facts because we didn't want to just do a campaign and it just failed so yeah management responded very very timely to our uh, to our call out um and then shortly after they um sent out an email to the whole school to say like look we apologize these students will get their money back for not only the years that they studied but backdated to when they started as well and that was for over 92 students in SOAS at the time um, and then shortly after we were commissioned, so myself and the other um, co-president to write a report so that these things could not happen again. And there was more holistic support for students going forward in, in, in more than just a monetary form. So like well-being and so forth. So yeah, that that's, that's what happened. Um, and that was my first kind of campaigny role within SOAS. And, and how did you find it to kind of become the leader? Have you always been the leader? Have you you always sort of taken that role on? I think it's been it's very natural. It's only so I think within university that I've really embraced it. Um, throughout my adolescent years, I was not confident at all in being a leader um, or in my own kind of power, and I was following a lot of people. Um, so yeah, being in SOAS really gave me the opportunity to find that voice and like find what it was that I cared about, and I think naturally when you believe in things people will be influenced by that and if they believe in it too will follow so I, I don't it's not that I don't see myself as a leader but it's like I see myself as having a very powerful voice with a good intention and you know that resonates with people so yeah I guess I am a leader I am and and what does that feel like um it feels like a, a huge responsibility. Um, I remember the day before the campaign, like I planned it out and like given everyone the strategy, like look, come at nine o'clock, we're gonna meet outside the offices. So it feels like a, ho a whole responsibility. And, I, and it's quite scary because it's like, if things go wrong, that falls on you. Um, 
but at the same time, it's very empowering because you see that like, whilst you are in the position where you can influence other people, so many other people can like add in their own stuff and like it becomes something wider. So it's like, yeah, it's very motivating and it feels very, um, very good. And so uh, you had three years at SOAS, you graduated with a first class honours. And what were you going to do then? What was your plan? So whilst I was in my second year, like, sorry, third year now, a lot was happening. So for context, um, our semesters, or sorry, here I go. So our terms um, are different from external, or I'd say overseas like semesters. So I had decided in year two, like just after the campaign that I was gonna go to New Zealand to study um, Maori history and kapahaka, which is their national dance. So during our summer holiday, which is June to September, I was actually in New Zealand studying. So just before I came back into year three, I had already come up with the idea of the black curriculum. I knew that's what I wanted to follow. So yeah, I don't know what came upon me, but I, that third year, obviously you have to do your dissertation. You have like modules that you need to pass to get the first class. Um, I was also running a society or co-running it. Um, but the black curriculum was the main thing that I was really, really passionate about. So I'd say by the end of that year, I was already kind of like within the black curriculum, it had become a thing. Um, so yeah, I, I just transitioned and it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy at all because most of my friends were going into jobs that were paying them. Um, <laughs> I was like, well, I'm just doing the black curriculum, you know, it's a project that I love, um, but I believed in it. And yes, I think that was my natural transition into the black curriculum from graduating. So tell us all about the black curriculum. How did you come to think about it and found it? So uh, what's it for? What are you trying to achieve? Um, and then where do you want to see it go in the future? Cool. So the Black Curriculum um, was something that I think was birthed along the journey I just explained, you know, going, being excluded, seeing um, how just a lack of kind of engagement within the education system produces outcomes specifically for young Black people. Um, but then as I started to learn African studies, I was like, wait, whoa, whoa, there's a huge discrepancy here. And that is impacting everybody, not only myself, but everyone in society. If we don't know this history, then we're ultimately setting ourselves up for failure. And there was loads of like discussions that I was having. So I think along the way, the black curriculum was just, it was germinating. And then when I um, went to New Zealand, it was just, it clicked. I was like, right, like I can see how powerful it is when you actually have your history in the curriculum, when other people can learn it, when um, and there's outcomes that like improve confidence. It looks like um, just having a, a more kind of inclusive society and a, a more emotional, emotionally healthy one as well. Um, and that's what I got when I was in New Zealand, like people could just speak about race without it being like, feeling like it was an attack or a defense thing. And it just felt very free flowing. So I said the black curriculum would be something that we would use to be able to empower all students with a sense of identity because um, it's, it's all our history, it's British history. And that, yeah, for me, I just wanted something that young people could connect with, but on an institutional level that was nationwide, instead of just like random schools doing it or like it happening in black history. Like, this was something that I wanted to see all year round for all young people. So I came back to the UK. Um, I had already applied for a grant from the Paul Hamlin Foundation. It was successful. So by December, 
I had like a an outline of what we were going to do. Um, I think 10k um, behind the idea, and I just started putting people together. So I met two girls, Bethany Thompson and Lisa Kennedy, and um, yeah, just really kind of told them like, you know, this is what I would like to see. And they were like, yeah, we have like a similar idea. Let's like, let's do it. Started meeting other freelancers as well, who were just like available to actually help put together the idea. So by April, the Black Curriculum was like a team of like 10 people already putting together like a curriculum. Um, we were cold calling schools and I was obviously using my network from SOAS to actually help do this as well. So there were students who were studying African studies, there were lecturers who would help, you know, with space and things. So if we needed to do like a focus group, we would use that space and SOAS to do that. So again, um, it was just growing. And in terms of where, where we landed by September, we had already worked in like three schools in South London. Um, I think over 1000 pupils by October. We also gave a talk at the Bank of England. And then December we, 2019, we met with um, the head of the curriculum policy team at the DfE to discuss like improvements and how we could embed the black curriculum into the national curriculum. And yeah, we had done quite a lot actually, like looking back. Um, so in terms of future ambitions, I would say that the black curriculum is, is it's not just like a, a program, it is, um, awareness awareness raising within all parts of society so like you think of small towns like Worthing um you know Chichester if you go up north like there are some um counties that really need this information so for me it's nationwide and not just in main cities and um it is the embedding of black history into curriculums and school curriculums but also into the national curriculum and the outcome of that is that all students have an importance of identity so my ambitions for the next five years with the black curriculum is to have the national curriculum have clear examples of black history be embedded from key stage one to three um for the organization we want to be like an organization that has like at least 200 employees doing work in different cities um so like big plans to scale and and make sure this information is accessible to everyone and have um everybody just like talk about black history not just in black history month but it's something that is just normalized so i say that's where we're going and yeah we're on the way to doing that like there are so many great things that have happened this year obviously since June um with the rise of awareness with Black Lives Matter and that's brought a lot more attention to the work um so I'd say yeah like that is the, that's the goal really. And, and when you look at the way history was taught at school or when you came through where was it failing and because yeah. I, I mean I, I know that your view is it was very Eurocentric and it wasn't sort of broad enough and it didn't encompass as you're saying black history but where, where where are the flaws and where does the education system need to change? Yeah so I think the first one is um, the role of the key stage topic so at the moment within the national curriculum what we have is a few examples of like individuals, not really events in history, um, but like you have Rosa Parks, Mary C. Cole. And then again, like touching on American history, there is a lack of black British history or British history within the curriculum. And then when you even go deeper into what is in um, the curriculum that is to do with black British history, it's just the transatlantic slave trade. There is no reference or mention of the hundreds of black Tudors that existed during the Tudor period or um, Romans, Black Romans, or 
um, Victorians. And there's just a lot of events that are just, I guess, misconstrued and are not kind of given the full entirety. So even with the transatlantic slave trade, I believe it should be taught. Absolutely, it's a key part of our history. Um, but what aspects are we focusing on? Is it just the fact that black people were enslaved or how can we like amplify the, men, the many nuances within that. So again, thinking about the economic contributions, the um, experiences and the narratives of those who were enslaved as well. So kind of making the curriculum more full. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that teachers don't have training on this. There is no provider, well, except the black curriculum at the moment that is providing teachers with actual tools and knowledge of actually how to engage with this because often there's this thing of like, and it's not their fault, but they don't have the confidence to talk about it because it's not there. So I think that's the second thing. Um, and I also think within the education system, it's just so disenfranchised. It's not disenfranchised, it's just so um, dis like, it's fractured. So at the moment, what we see is that some schools are teaching it really well, other, other um, schools aren't, there's only Black History Month in others. So it's like, there's so many things going on and I think we just need to have like one clear approach to it where there's you know it's mandatory um across the board so it's not like an option um and that that is to do with awareness but it's also to do with you know what's in the national curriculum many teachers actually look to the DfE for guidance um there was guidance issued a couple of weeks ago many schools have been following it and so we can't negate the fact that even though most schools don't actually have to follow the national curriculum many teachers still actually look to the national curriculum for guidance. So I think there is a clear discrepancy as well. So I think those are the main areas, but there's obviously a few other places as well. We could do more work. And tell me why society is weaker from not having a holistic view of black history. I, th I think it's a really good question. Where there's a lack of information, there's much more room for ignorance, um, particularly if there's no incentive to um, connect and if there's no incentive for us to learn about each other it just produces a lot more division um, and we've seen that you know we've seen that over the last couple of years and even before like there's um, clear examples of how a lack of information produces like the uh, Stephen Lawrence obviously going back to 1991 um, in, in part of the recommendations it suggested that um, a solution to racism is actually to learn about each other's histories right and introducing cultural history and I think yeah what, what we're seeing is a weaker society because there's there's a lack of education education is the thing that enables us to not only learn but also take our learnings and produce better societies um so yeah I think because there's a lack of empathy at the moment due to the lack of black history or just British history more accurately um there is a lot more divisions and a lot more confusion um and we don't need that we need a more stronger society we need a more fairer society and like that's what education does you know it brings us together and and tell me what do you most enjoy about founding uh, the black curriculum um it's a good question because i feel like now um i am transitioning from founder to ceo and that's really it's really difficult um so i'd say as a founder there is the joy of being able to see the impact that it's making and like oh, okay I wasn't crazy <laughs> like this is actually something that society needs so I think seeing the reception and the impact that it's making on young people through their feedback is like a great thing I think currently as CEO it's just it's just learning and engaging with people right on the team growing them and like um 
yeah, growing our responsibilities as well. So I think there's like a few things that I'm enjoying more about this work. And what's the most challenging thing? Um, I'm going to say, I'm going to say that the, 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 the most challenging thing at the moment is not being able to see everything. Um, as a founder, like you're doing everything, you're like doing the marketing, doing the groundwork. And at the moment, I feel like I'm not there as much as I want to be. And I think that's the most challenging. It's not, yeah, like personally, it's not the most like rewarding thing being behind a laptop all the time. Um, but I think in terms of like the black curriculum, the most challenging thing in terms of getting to our goal is the lack of response that we've had from the government, the current government. We've had a lot of like engagement, but no clear results. And I'd like to see more like engagement, more engagement that leads to actual outcomes, right? So I think on those both, both of those fronts, I think those are the main challenges. And have you found managing people? Um, it's, it's, you know what, it's actually so fun because there's so many different personalities. Everyone has like different insights and contributions. So I'm learning a lot all the time from them. Um, but I'd say it's like, it's a, it's a new responsibility and it's very difficult. I can't lie. Yeah. And so what lessons have you learned about managing people? Um, I'd say the key lessons is um, to listen. Like I do more listening than I do talking. Um, I'd also say it's really important to have a goal and a vision and continue to articulate that when I do talk because um, yeah, like it is about connecting people to, to, to the heart of what we're doing, right? So I think, yeah, it's really important as a founder CEO to always relay that vision to other people. Um, and I'd also say the, the other lesson, um, yeah, I think there is something there around being around people who have different skills like I don't want to say that I can do it all that's not the truth the truth is that you need people who can do different things and that's what I'm enjoying at the moment like just seeing people just excel and grow and like you know we have someone in media and comms and she's she started off with media but now she's like a marketing expert like and I think that's the thing of like I'm I'm not the marketing expert here she is um and yeah I think it's just important to have different skills around you that's cool and um if there's somebody listening to this who um, has a passion to become a campaigner, what advice would you give them? I don't want to sound cliche. Um, I'd say spend time talking to people because an idea might sound really great in your head and it, it may, you may feel like, yeah, this is what the world needs, but is it? And it could be, but like what aspects of it could you go any deep? And I think it's really important as campaigners to be ears rather than just the voice. There is a time for you to be the voice, but you need to listen first. Um, so I'd say that. Um, and, and lastly, um, just believe in it. Just believe, believe that whatever, like Nelson Mandela has a really good quote, like, like nothing seems um, impossible until it's made possible, but you need to believe that it's already been done and approach it like it's going to work because it won't work otherwise. And I, I, I know that you've taken the, um, the work, the work or happiness test, and I can tell from talking to you that you're very happy, but, but tell me when you took the test, how did you score? Okay. So, um, compared to the industry, I was 24% above. Um, and in terms of my score, 
I scored 93 percent which is huge it's huge <laughs> and, so, and so the things that I would imagine that most resonated with you are having a sense of purpose uh making a, a difference um and uh I I sense that's a really powerful and important thing for you that you want to be driven by a cause by doing something worthwhile definitely like waking up every day um to emails is not the thing that motivates me what motivates me is knowing that the people behind those emails also want to make a change right and like it, it just provides you with more motivation when you don't feel like things are working um and i'd also say my top one of my top values is freedom um and I don't say it's a coincidence that I'm now running my own company. So I feel like being able to work in my own way is also something that has contributed to that happiness as well. And um, a couple of quick questions to, to end. First of all, um, if you were going to nominate somebody to do the, the work or happiness test, who would you ask to do it and why? Oh, it's a really good one. Um, Do you know what I would I would ask um, either an ex prime minister or someone who held like public office um, before and is no longer doing that because I want to I want to understand what happens when you're not always at the front and center like what you know how do you define yourself and like what does happiness actually mean is it more time is it do you know what I mean? So I want to I want to ask someone who is no longer holding public office to yeah, just identify how happy they actually are now. So Theresa May. Yeah, let's ask her. <laughs> you should have done the test when she was doing the job yeah. and then afterwards to see when she was happier. That would have been actually a good comparison. And then my last question to you, what, what piece of music when you hear it makes you feel happiest? Jazz. Love jazz. And is there, is there a particular artist or a particular tune song? Um, two artists that come to mind. Um, Herbie Hancock, um, who's someone of the, I think, 80s, I believe. Um, and another bass player called um, Esperanza Spalding. She's great. Very great. Very like, yeah, she has a lot going on then. And if, is there any particular track that they play? That when um, you hear it, you just can't help yourself but smile <laughs> and get up and dance? Um, yeah. Okay, so the first one, um, Watermelon, it's got a really good groove, and that's by Herbie Hancock. Um, it just gets you, like, yeah, dancing. <laughs> um, and I'd also say there's another artist, actually, who's not jazz. He is more like neo-jazz, a fusion of a couple things. Um, his name's Anderson Pack, and one of my favourite songs by him is Heart Don't Stand a Chance, and it's very good. <laughs> I'm sure after that, lots of listeners will be looking to, to find that on Spotify or iTunes. And Lavinia, thank you very much for your, your time on this podcast. Um, it's uh, really inspirational what you've done to uh, take on those challenges when you're at SOAS to, to get people grants who haven't got them and bursaries, uh, and then to take that forward and to found the, um, the Black Curriculum uh, and now to run it as CEO. Um, and I'm sure that you're making a real difference already, but I know you're going to make an even greater difference as you go forward. So thank you very much for your time and sharing your experience with all of our listeners. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure.
Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co where you can find out how you can get happier at work.